How do you go 16 years with a person as your best friend slash business partner slash a school chum and not see any sign that this guy has the potential of not only murdering somebody, but but uh, butchering their body, cutting off their fingernails, taking half their face off, almost decapitating. What am I leaving out, kids? You know, how, how do you miss that? Don't and, and that's the thing. It, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yep. After the after the crime happened, you look back and you go, "Oh yeah, I saw this in him, and that should have alerted me." But during while it's going on, you don't think that. You don't think, "Well, he's got a temper," because everybody's got a temper. Uh, so so the the short and quick answer to that is, you see everything that leads up to that, but only after it happens does it become significant. So what did you see? What did your hindsight tell you then? What did you see that you missed, that you know you missed? I saw that he was very misogynistic and that he was very controlling of women and that he he had a very big authority over him. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he really did not like being bossed around. And, and when he finally found women who would follow him, he bossed them around uh, like, like a prison. I mean, it was, he went crazy on them. And then I also saw that he had a quick temper. Uh, when we were in college, he held one kid out a window one time for dropping the F-bomb uh, around a couple of women. So right away, you notice that your friend is slightly volatile. However, <laughs> and being as he likes to be in a power position, he becomes a preacher. Yes. So he can tend the needs of his flock, so to speak. Well, and he was an excellent preacher. It's easy, it's easy again, in hindsight, to, to demonize him and to go back and, and say, you know, this guy was, was a manipulator. But during, when you're in the thick of it at the time, he was an amazingly good preacher. And uh, he, was, he was a very kind person, a very giving person. So you, you have to really balance everything and say, even though the signs were there that he was going to be, become this homicidal maniac, uh, the truth is, when those signs were being displayed, they were buried amidst all these other signs ah. that, that this is a really good guy. So he covered himself pretty well. He played one role when he was in the spotlight. Well, well I even, think he played even, it. Even when yeah, he I wasn't. In the spot. Yeah, he played it most of the time. Uh, there, you know, he did let some show through the cracks, but you had to be really close to him to see it. Uh, he was very controlling of his first wife, and uh, and I believe for a while I was the only one who saw it. Now let's let's give our audience a little bit of background here. The fellow that he's talking about, his good buddy Sean, uh, is actually, as he says, a very good, uh, very good preacher. Uh, gets up there, he can move the crowd, make them uh, really get into it. And uh, he, he demonstrates he's a nice guy. He, you know, take the, literally give the coat off his back to give to someone who doesn't have one. But he's got these other deep-rooted emotional problems. Uh, he has a wife. But then he becomes uh, fascinated with the concept of polygamy, of having more than one wife. After all, a lot of Bible folks had him. Why not him? Am I right? <laughs> That's exactly right. By the way, uh, uh, under being bossed around, don't get married. <laughs> and the worst thing that well, can happen is if you ask ask your wife what's wrong honey she says nothing you got real problems oh you got even bigger problems than that <laughs> now, it doesn't like being bossed around get married once and then wait a minute not good enough for me let me add another one in here <laughs> well, that's why he liked to marry women who were so young so much younger than him so that uh he would be the one in charge so that uh they they never felt on equal footing to him to challenge him like that or to or to tell him what to do. So it was wife number two that he killed? 
Yes. Okay. Do you think that, using your hindsight now, do you think he killed more than once? No, I don't. Although, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it beyond the realm of possibility. He had a third wife who disappeared. However, uh, she disappeared under fairly natural circumstances and probably is still alive. Uh, well, let's tell us those circumstances. Now, I'm. I'm uh, yeah, I didn't uh, quite grasp the third yeah. one there. Well, the third one didn't really make it into the book is why. Uh, she was uh, an older lady that he married from New York, and she only lasted with their family about nine months before the other two wives asked her to leave. And uh, so she <laughs> left on her own accord. I don't, I don't believe Sean killed her. I, I'm pretty sure she left on her own accord. I, I did a lot of work trying to track her down for the book and never could find her. Yeah, the book, by the way, is called Deadly Vows. I like to get that in there because it's an absolutely fascinating book for several reasons. One, not only is, is the character study of your buddy, this Sean guy, who seems so exemplary, as Jim Jones did at one time, and he gets fascinated with this thing of polygamy. Now, uh, I don't know whether he wants people to boss around or around the house to have plenty of them, which is a big mistake because it's not going to work that way. Could it, uh, could it be that he, he had an innate need to live and follow the teachings that he was espousing? No, I, I don't. I really don't think that was the issue. I think it was the exact opposite. I believe he did, he found a loophole that would allow him to have more than one woman without uh, without being askew of the Bible, and then he bent theology to meet that desire. Here's the loophole. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there was a recent Save study a guy, done. A lot of time on that. Anybody, any guys listening that if that you're thinking about getting a second wife in there. Do not do that. <laughs> Thank Anybody, you. Thank you, Howard. Hang on a second. One more thing, and then I'm going to let you get back to the show. Anybody thinking about getting a wife right now? <laughs> Think again. Okay, I'm done. I, I okay. hope your wife isn't listening. Both of them are. <laughs> both of them are. Both, both of them are disappearing under mysterious and, and circumstances. both of them are, are cheering. Hey, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, this guy, Sean, he has a wife. Gets a, She's young. She's like teenage, right? She was uh, 17 when he married her. So he convinces her that, gee, honey, things would be easier around the house if we bring in a second woman? Well, he convinced her that it was God's will. Yeah. Well, this is why I started to say there's a recent study done that if you ask people God's, what their think God's opinion is on any topic, amazingly enough, it always matches theirs. <laughs> <laughs> and if they change their mind, God changed his mind. It's the most amazing thing. And don't forget, by the way, God got his will at LegalZoom.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing would be humorous if it weren't so damn tragic. Because when this woman, uh, give her her name, the second wife. Joy Risker. Now, she's a good-looking young lady. She also has got some smarts. And she has goals for her life. She wants a career. She, you know, she's got some things going on. This doesn't sit well with him, does it? No, no, he couldn't handle that. She was going to go to college and become essentially financially independent. And uh, he saw that. He saw that as losing his control. Also, that if if she ditches him, if she walks, what kind of example does that set for him being a good husband? Well, in his mind, that that uh, totally undermined every bit of theology that he was at that time preaching, which was uh, only only people who are worthy can become actual good husbands. And if one of his wives left, that meant that he wasn't worthy. Well, I got news for him; he wasn't. Well, 
we know that. <laughs> <laughs> he, however, was delusional. I mean, yeah, he, he he completely had that idea out of his mind. He did not, for a second, think that the problem could be him. No, and you know, the thing is, folks. I know I'm getting ahead in the story, but this is so typical of psychopaths and people who are like your ex buddy, Sean. Yeah. He not only murders her, he doesn't like just like poison her or kill her in her sleep. He brutally attacks her with a knife and stabs her more times than my calculator can count, rips her to shreds, uh, chops off her fingers, removes her face, cuts off her teeth with a chainsaw. I mean, we're not talking, you know, putting her out of her misery. Talking about that was a calculated attempt to disguise her so that if her body was found, he couldn't be identified as a killer. Okay, so they find, let's move the story forward a little bit. He, he kills her. Uh-huh. He uh, buries her body in another state. Right. Somebody finds the body. Meanwhile, he says to the authorities, uh, well, she, she upped and went to Europe with an old boyfriend. Initially, he said she had gone to Europe with an old boyfriend, and then when it uh, when it came out that she didn't have a passport, he changed that <laughs> story to he changed that story to Europe or somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, oh, so and, it's the and, or somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What what pressured him into confessing? That's a good question. Uh, they tried to get that out in trial. Um, the the. The truth is, nobody knows except for him. Mm-hmm. I, I can say that the uh, that the authorities were getting very close to calling in homicide uh, detectives, and his first wife uh, screamed at him and told him he needed to turn himself in. That same day, he called me, uh, and uh, and I said, uh, you know, he didn't tell me what was going on. He just asked me for for blind advice, and I told him to do the right thing. Uh, and then the next day, he uh, he turned himself in. What was well, he called you up? Out of the yeah. blue. Out of the blue. Out of the, well, it wasn't out of the blue. We talked a lot back then. Okay. He called you up, though. And yeah. what, what did he say? He said... He said, I need you to pray for me. Okay. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and at that time, I was, I was sort of uh, sliding my way out of fundamentalist religion, and so I wasn't the kind of person who believed God talks to people all the time. Uh, so I knew he had to be desperate because he knew I believed that as well. Uh, so I did go ahead and pray for him, and of course I didn't hear anything, and so I told him that, and then I said, you know, uh, just do the right thing. You can never go wrong that way. What When you pray for someone, what do you expect to hear? Help me? Uh, me? Yeah. me? Nothing. <clears throat> uh, All right, so you're at nothing now. What? Did, but what yeah. was he hearing, and what did you hear before you decided well, there was nobody home? Well, I, I had convinced myself before that my own thoughts were, were God, which I believe most people who are hearing from God have done. Right. Uh, and, and of course, he was of the kind of religion that believed God speaks to people all day long, every day. And, uh, and of course, in his state of mind, he didn't feel like he was hearing from God very clearly. And uh, so he, he thought he would reach out to the next, the next person he knew and see if, and that was see if you. somebody else could hear So he him. called yeah. up and said, please pray for me, even though he knew that you, uh, you had kind of converted God's voice to your own inner dialogue, as it probably is. And, and yeah. um and he and, and and you prayed for him and you heard nothing and, but how did you know or did you have this feeling that something was askew no i did i didn't i i thought he was hurting over the fact that his wife had left okay uh because that's what he had told me uh but i knew he had to be desperate and so i i offered up whatever advice i could which again was just do the right thing 
and uh, I don't know how much that could have influenced him. I think more the the police asking more pointed questions and his wife screaming at him were probably <laughs> probably the big uh, motivators. Yeah, yeah, so, I would think so. So she's good and dead in another state. But yeah. at this point, when he confesses, he confesses, they hadn't found any body yet, right? That's correct. They didn't find uh, her body until uh, four or five months after he confessed. And then how did they know it was her body after that's he did a this? fascinating story itself yeah well they didn't know it was her body for the longest time he she was found just outside of uh, Phoenix in uh, in Maricopa County Arizona and uh, the forensics people there she was already mostly skeleton uh, by then and they went out of their way to reassemble her skeleton and build up a uh, a clay profile and then a drawing of what she looked like to try and find out who she was. And uh, it was probably another six months after they found her when they finally got a hit on a DNA database um, that turned out to be the wrong person. But then once they had her DNA in the database, they found that she was the missing girl from San Diego. Yeah, they they were trying to identify another body that they had found, and they they sent this body's DNA for another missing person and said, no, it's not her, it's somebody else. So, guys, yeah. with DNA evidence, and this goes out to all everybody here. Don't kill anybody. You're, you're always, you, you, there's no getting away with anything anymore, no matter how you chop somebody up. Well, now there's not, but, but back then, DNA was still sort of in its infancy, and getting DNA from bone uh, was even more sketchy. So And it was very expensive, and, and the Maricopa County people explained to me that they didn't automatically back then enter bone DNA into the databases because it was too expensive to get. No. There was uh, something interesting out of this attempt. Your, your mic isn't working there again. See, I told you we were doing our technical sweep here. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, there was something interesting about the uh, his attempt to hide uh, or disguise the body so it couldn't be identified. Um, there was some uh, interest in the defense on uh, uh, the CSI effect. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate? Yeah, he um, he and I had actually discussed writing a book, a fiction book, about a killer who uh, simply watches uh, forensics files and, and shows like that to figure out what police do to catch killers and then avoid doing all those things. Um, the and, best and thing to avoid is not committing the crime. Thanks, well, yeah. <laughs> well but spoken. But if you're a character in a book, you have to commit the crime and there's no book. That's right. So you were talking about a piece of fi- fiction, obviously. Yeah, it was going to be fiction, and uh, we went into great detail about all of the things that our killer would do uh, to, to uh, outsmart the police, including uh, removing the identity of the deceased, um, you know, hiding the body, things like that. Were you, uh, called, were you called in the case? I was called, but not for that reason. For what reason? I was called to testify initially uh, that he had asked me to lie on a blog and use uh, use a different name than my own. Uh, and only after that did the, did the DA discover that he and I had been friends for a long time, so they recalled me uh, after he had testified, and they recalled me essentially to rebut his testimony. Well, this guy's a real piece of work. I mean, yeah. he was... The thing about him killing her that way, and is that, but in the initial act of killing her... He could have killed her softly with his song. He could have done it in a way that wasn't so violent. Why did he, after taking her out for a lovely afternoon, uh, kill her with such anger and viciousness? 
again, that's anybody's guess. My guess is uh, he espoused a violent religion. In other words, not not physically violent, but violent toward the devil. And I believe uh, he believed to to exercise this devil that he thought she had become. He had to do it as violently as possible. What a what a BS excuse. Yeah, well, I agree. It's amazing what people do in the name of religion. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to take a 60-second break to cut off some fingers and soft some teeth. We're going to make soup. (laughs) We'll be right back in 60 seconds with Leif Wright, author of Deadly Vows on True Crime Uncensored. pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer. You're now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio, Demons of Decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked in the cradle of rhythm and blues, taking time out of my busy schedule to remind you to take every cent you have and spend it buying books. Of course, you should buy the book by our guest, Deadly Vows, by Leif M. Wright, a wonderful book, a real uplifting story. But while you're at it, buy all of mine, including Murder on 9-11, true story of a Tacoma homicide, longest investigation in Tacoma history, also Manling Williams' deadly sins. She uh, killed both her kids and then slashed her husband to death 97 times with a samurai sword and then wrote him a suicide note. However, you should buy Body Count, the true story of the Spokane serial killer. While you're at it, get headshot, two and a half psychopaths, three trials, and a judge that runs screaming out of the courtroom. True story. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're cordially invited to stay tuned for the rest of True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio, standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, uh, you should have, Roger. We're talking to Leif M. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. The book is Deadly Vows, an absolutely fascinating book about his best buddy, Sean, who uh, was a great preacher and a lousy human being. He, uh, he decided he wanted more than one wife. And when the second one decided she wanted a career, well, the logical thing to do is kill her and chop her up in little pieces. Yeah, it's, it uh, to say that this makes yeah. any sense. There we go. Oh, then didn't he uh, also fake some emails from Europe or somewhere else? Yes, when the, when the police were asking where she was, uh, he emailed her friends as her uh, and told them to leave her alone. And then uh, he emailed himself as her. 
uh, and and told him to tell the police that she was just fine. Oh, yes. Well, getting back to the question we asked earlier, I opened up your book, and as if by divine intervention, the Lord guided me to page 153, where it says, though we had preached about spiritual, not physical violence, it seems Sean now viewed joy as an enemy. Somehow the only way he saw out of the situation was violence, brutal, bloody violence. Now, he'd already sedated her with some codeine and uh, methazine. Sean easily could have smothered her with a pillow. But no, no, he attacked her, stabbing her again and again, deeply enough to scar her bones, brutally enough to sever her sternum. He wasn't mercifully ending a problem that had cropped up. He was attacking an adversary with all his might. He was going to warfare against this evil thing. She's pretty good looking for an evil thing. Hey, that's pretty good. You should have that author on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you are the author. And you're so, on. Uh, hang on. There we go. I've got the mic back. Yeah, let me ask you something. No, you don't. Damn. <laughs> when, when, when is the last time you spoke with him? The last time I spoke with Sean was when he called me the day before he turned himself in. And, and throughout um, the process of the court case, you never spoke to him? Throughout the putting together this book, you never spoke to him? I, I tried. I wrote him letters and asked him for comments, uh, and he uh, ignored them. But he did tell his family uh, to tell me what a son of a bitch I was for writing it. Well, you are a son of a bitch. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you do know my mom, then. <laughs> <laughs> we met that one. So, no, I'm sorry. But... Yeah. but um, uh, so no contact after 16 years, and you're a son of a bitch now because you wrote a book about the guy. Um, wow. Now, but yeah, in the courtroom, I mean, you had to see Sean. When you went into that courtroom to testify at his murder trial, and there you are, his former best buddy, what does he do? He looks at you. Does he the scowl? First time, yeah, the first time when they called me to the stand and I walked up to the stand, he uh, winked at me and smiled. You know, in some of those emails, what did, what did you ask him? That you nobody's asked you yet. What did you ask him? What's the most personal thing you asked him? That I asked Sean? Yeah, and, and when you were trying to communicate with him. Um, well, I didn't ask him anything other than would he like to talk about about the case for the book because I was going to write the book. Um, uh, you so didn't try I, to I'm hook not... him. You didn't try and hook him into a conversation. You're a journalist. You know how to do that. Well, I, I understand, but he's also a journalist, and so he was uh, he was privy to all those tricks. Uh, basically, I was just trying to get him to think that I was on his side. Uh, so I said things like, um, it's a shame I had to testify against you, that kind of stuff, uh -huh. uh, which was total bullshit. Uh, I, I would have testified against him no matter what. But So were you pissed? That Were you angry at him? Yes, yes, furious. Okay, but obviously a sick man, yes? No? I'm sorry, I mean, he's, a, he's, a, sick, he's, a, he's a sick man. Oh, yeah, he's, he's off the rocker for sure. In fact, I believe if he were out today, he would still be of a mindset that could do this sort, sort of thing uh, Yeah. Again. I, when does he get out? If he gets out, he'll get out when he's about 65. Ooh. Yeah. Where does that put us in time? Um, well, you guys are pretty old, so it puts you dead. But I, I would... hey, if I it make it to the a... end of the show, Leaf, I'm doing good. All right? A smart um, ass. You want to start with being dead? Hang on a second. Who's he coming after first when he gets out? It's not going to be me. I'll be resting. I'm pretty sure it will be me. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think so. Uh... In, a typical, in a typical psychopathic fa fashion. He, your buddy, ex-buddy Sean, the brutal murderer preacher, he casts himself in the role of a victim. Yes. 
and that this is this is actually kind of a good thing because it'll make him stronger in serving the Lord. He, he did that at the sentencing. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, give us a little detail on that. How did he how did he present himself at that thing? At the sentencing, he he the first thing he did was thank the judge for giving him the opportunity to to expose his personal flaws and how that would make him a better Christian. Uh, and then he uh, and then he spoke to his sons and said, "I hope someday you understand my plight." Uh, and then he told them that he loved them more than he loved life itself, which I think is crazy because if he loved them that much, he wouldn't have killed their mother. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point you raise. Now, but how are those kids? I mean, it's it's a very upsetting thing, <laughs> to put it mildly, when dad kills mom or vice versa. These kids must be kind of screwed up behind all this. Uh, you know, I don't know. I do know that Sean's older brother is, is raising the, the kids uh, just probably about uh, 40 miles from where I live right now. Oh, so, um, so the first wife didn't keep the kids? No, the first wife kept her own child, which uh, he had one by her and two by the, the second wife. And she's going to supposedly just go off, you know, to Europe or someplace else. Yeah, supposedly she was just going to leave her children and, and run off to Europe with a boyfriend, which is really what, what made everybody's ears stick up because she was a good mother and no one could imagine her just leaving her children. Yeah, that's, that is a little bit unusual. Tell us a little bit about his, his preaching career. He was hooked up with some pretty high-profile people, wasn't he? He was. He, he started out um, when we were just barely teenagers. Uh, he started out preaching, and by the time he was 22, he was pastoring one of the fastest-growing churches in the nation. Uh, and then by the time he was 27, he was a chief writer for Morris Cirillo, who's a televangelist. And uh, from that point forward, he and I wrote for many televangelists and uh, spent a lot of time around them and a lot of time, uh, you know, raising money for them and doing all kinds of other shady stuff. Other <laughs> shady oh, stuff? Oh, back up. Oh, back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get the truck uh, That's got interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, put the book aside for a second. <laughs> Well, what sort of shady stuff, shady stuff were you doing for the uh, television? Well, mostly the raising of money. We had convinced ourselves that the ends justified the means, and so we, at some point, became okay with lying to to raise the money. Oh yeah, that's uh, a very that's a very uh, big Christian uh, okay. virtue. Give us give us the lie. Well, we would say things like, um, if you go to this meeting. Uh, Morris Cirillo will personally prophesy over you, and prophesy being uh, supposedly telling you God's will for your life. Well, when we said that, we meant Morris will stand up on stage and prophesy over all 10,000 people. But what the reader took it as is he will come to you personally and speak to you about God's will for your life. And that'll be we how much? Time. That'll be how much? God's will is how much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, $1,000 if you want a seat in the front. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, what do you get for the thousand? Does, does he come down and give you the old blesser roof? Oh no, he never did that. But no. if you paid a thousand, you got to sit in the front row. No kidding. That's true. Well, I can get Springsteen seats for six hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Springsteen's not going to tell you the Lord's will for your life. No, but I believe him. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, this individual do the Peter Popoff? Um, we knew about Peter Popoff, uh, and we made fun of Peter Popoff because he got, you know, he got caught using a radio to uh, to prophesy to people. Um, and and Morris was always very careful to avoid scandals like that. He never got caught up in any of those things, although he was just as fake as Peter Popoff ever was. 
So, uh, so, so they're all fake, right? Every one of them. To my knowledge, they are. I never, uh, I There's never ran into one. I never ran into a televangelist that I trust my kids with. Now that's an important statement. How about an evangelist that you would <laughs> trust your kids with? No, not really. I think they're all a little bit out there. So now you were you were one of them. So you were right. out there yourself. But when you split, I was. You, so you when you not only did you leave, you left yes. with a vengeance, seemingly. Well, it's, it's kind of like... I'm uh, hearing you're a little pissed about the whole deal. No, I'm serious. Of course I am. It's, yeah. it's kind of like the worst ex-smoker, or the worst uh, anti-smoking person is an ex-smoker. Uh, and and uh, I'm kind of the worst uh, evangelical because I'm an ex-evangelical. Yeah, because you've, you've been there. And uh, that's one of the, the subplots, shall we say, of this book that I found absolutely fascinating. Is not only does he really get into the mind and the behavior of Sean, he gets into his own mind and behavior, where he was coming from and, and where he is now. And uh, while that doesn't dominate the story, it's a, a fascinating aspect of it. It scares me, though, Burrow, because we see what happened to this guy. And, you know, he's got something in common with a lot of other people being an evangelist. I'm just wondering, is that gene planted in other evangelists? Do you see that anyplace else in life? No, but I think the religion lends itself to that because it gives carte blanche to people who they believe are called by God. In, in the preaching that you really don't mess with someone if they're called by God. And that gives those people who are allegedly called by God a lot of room to, to do crazy things and then blame it on God. Is that, does, that, does, does, that, uh, does that give license to priests to... Uh, 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 it's a different mindset, I well, think, in Catholicism than it is in, in the uh, well, yeah, Pentecostal I mean, evangelical well, mindset. I, I don't know that it is a different I, mindset that's, because that's my they point. just move them to a new diocese. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't see any of these individuals trying to, uh, trying to um, uh, even put forth the defense that God said it was okay for me to molest these little children. Or kill my wife. Right. Well, apparently God said it was okay for him to kill his wife, right? I think in his mind it's a possibility that he thinks that. He never said that, but uh, but I would not put that outside the realm of possibility. But when he said, when he called you up the night before and said, pray for me. Yeah. He Was he trying to get you to stop him or hear him? Was I think he was. I, I, there's a story in the Bible where a king asks uh, a bunch of magicians to tell him what his dream was and then tell him what it meant. And I think it was in that vein that Sean was asking me. He wanted to see if maybe God would tell me something. Hey, he killed his wife or something like that, which, of course, didn't happen. So um, did, did, uh, help me out, and I'm sorry. Did, did he call you before he killed her, or did he call you before he confessed? Well, he, he talked to me before he killed her, but it was just about how he was going to have to get rid of her, uh, <laughs> which, of course, I took to mean divorce. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's play that conversation back in your head, which you've done uh, 10,000 times. Give, yeah, us that, okay. give us that conversation because you have you've played it back. Uh, you, yeah, he you called know. me. Yeah, he called me, and and we were talking about life. And then uh, I said, "How's Joy and the kids?" And he said, "Life. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get rid of her." And I said, "Well, what's what's up with that?" And he said, "Well, she's a horrible mother. Uh, she's messy. She spends too much money." He said, uh, "She and specifically, he said she leaves dishes in the sink, which I thought oh, was an odd no. reason." Oh no! Yeah, I, it's, I it's thought funny. that was a pretty it, odd it, reason. It's funny because I'm, divor uh, so I'm divorcing I, somebody I really, for the opposite reason. She cleans too much. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I really, uh, I really took that to mean that he was going to divorce her, and he right. told me at that time she had two weeks to shape up or ship out. 
And uh, turns out I was not the only person he was telling that to. He told another woman the same thing at that same time. Yeah, time was marching onward. <laughs> she was doomed. We're going to take a uh, short break with another 60 seconds to sharpen our knives and clean the sink. And we'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored with special guest Leif M. Wright, author of the great new book, Deadly Vows, which you should buy immediately. We'll be right back. just for you. If you own a cell phone, and we know you do, or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now safe to roam while Barstow's burning, and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. You know, the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Okay, gets out of jail. We know he's going to be 65. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we can talk about what he's doing. Oh, come on. Let's take time out of our busy schedule to discuss Satan. You know, Satan, feels above, hell's a poppin', the monkey on the back of Western Christianity, a cross between that little green man roving the dishwashers, putting spots on the glasses, and the worst thing you can imagine. Stealing your socks in the dryer. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, it seems to me that Satan gets preached about in some of these churches more than God does. What do you say, Leif? Uh, that sounds like it's directly taken from my book. It is! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old two-god theory, dualism. <clears throat> I keep reminding people when it's dark outside, it's not dark because some black orb is radiating darkness. I thought it's, that was the Jungian thing, the duality the, of man. No, no, no. The, it's dark because the earth is turned away from the light of the sun, not because there's a black orb radiating darkness. Uh, they seem to have a little problem grasping that. By, yeah. by, by the way, I'm buying your book, damn it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I, I am going to buy this book. Uh, I, I, you're a fascinating guy, and and to have gone through the transformation, that, the personal transformation that you've gone through, the because um, uh, you're you're angry, and you're upset, yet you still are. You know, you're a journalist, and you still decided I'm going to write this thing. I'm going to document this thing. So hats off to you. It was that was actually a tough decision um, because you know I waited about ten years before I wrote the book. Uh, because I, I felt like you know maybe it should just go away, and then I and then I thought no, people need to understand. They need to know that that you just don't know the people around you. You never know who is capable of this kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's rather shocking when you find out that your best friend just chops someone up a little pieces. Anything uh, about anybody else around you, or do, do, do <laughs> let you off the hook with this guy? Uh, as far as I know, they're all they're all nice people. But then again, you know I've been fooled before, so you probably shouldn't trust me. Yeah, after all, you're just like him. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 but you quit. Damn it, you quit. You, 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 did you, do you think that you, when you were working for the televangelist, do you think that you were stealing? 
I think I was helping him steal, so I was just as guilty as he was by, by all means. You know, I get a quote from your book here because it, the, the book is, is excellent. The shock of my best friend murdering someone I knew and loved still simmers beneath the surface for me, and at the most inopportune times, it will pop back up in my consciousness. Invariably, the questions rise, how could you not have known about him? What kind of cult were you in? Are you stupid? Are you crazy? Recalling those times for this book has been difficult and embarrassing. It's ugly to remember myself as the closed-minded hypocrite I was during those times. It hurts me to remember being prejudiced against so many people, those of other religions, those of other lifestyles, and those who wish to believe and know God at all. And that's exactly what Sean and his murder remind me of. Do you, do you believe in God? Uh, you know, I hope there's a God. Uh, I, I don't... Uh... I don't have any evidence to say that there is or that there, that there isn't, so uh, I'm, I'm sort of agnostic about it, but I really do hope there is one. In your hope, what do you see? What's your picture? In my hope, it is a God who is nowhere near as prejudiced as the God of the Bible, a God who, who uh, uh, basically created us all, cares for us all, and uh, doesn't get judgmental, and uh, certainly there is no hell. I, I will say that beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is no hell. It's interesting. The, um, the, the, the book, the, the, old, the Old Testament, the New Testament, fairy tales? No, I think they were, they were people's attempts to, to put a face on what they believed. I likened it in the book to this. Uh, the Mona Lisa was inspired by uh, da Vinci's model, I think, the same way the Bible was inspired by God. In other words, he saw this woman and did his best to represent her. Uh, on the on the canvas, and I think the writers of the Bible had a belief system, and they did their best to represent it in the Bible. But it's certainly not a photographic image. But I mean, the 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 Old Testament God and the New Testament God are different people. Well, the Old Testament God different, is, different is, is angry and vengeful and violent. I, I think that's overwhelmingly the case. I also think in the Old Testament, though, there's some some very poignant. Uh, examples of him being loving and sappy and sort of like the hippie Jesus kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> it, it just doesn't happen as often as it did in the New Testament. So yeah, you always get to see who was like unto the you know, slow to anger, full of mercy, and his mercy yeah. endureth forever, as we uh, say over and over again on the High Holy Days. Well, he was, he was upset with us, so he just decided to drown everybody. So, 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 so Leif, somebody comes to us. happening hey, here Leif, now. Leif, you can write a chapter of the Bible. Let's say you have that ability, and, and they're going to put it in. What would that chapter look like? I, it would look a lot like um, Buddhism, I think. It, it would be more of a, hey, just try to be a good person. Uh, and uh, if, there's some, if there's some crazy god up there who's going to throw you in hell just because you don't believe in him, then, you know, screw him. It reminds me of my friend of Phil Clickgard, that's his real name, uh, <laughs> said, what if the Christians are right? What if God is crazy? <laughs> and I said, don't, don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. How about this? And I've, I've quoted my late friend Richard Jane, the stand-up comedian before. Oh, nice. uh, he said his take on religion was simple. It was, uh, religion is about a bunch of guys who are willing to go to war and kill each other over who has the best imaginary friend. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's that true. Uh, there's, a, there's also a Patton Oswalt joke about, about uh, the big cake god in the sky. 
And, uh, you know, our cake is better than your cake. And, no, it's the big donut god in the sky. Yeah, or the uh, spaghetti monster. Now, I, I happen to be a very religious person, not probably the, the way one would imagine. Uh, and in my faith, I'm a, I'm a Jewish fellow who also uh, subscribes to the Baha'i faith, where it says the fundamental purpose, maybe you'll like this, the fundamental purpose animating the faith of God and his religion is to safeguard the interests and promote the unity of the human race. And so to I foster like a spirit of love and fellowship. That's it, very nice what you have Anything to pay. else is man-made BS. Yeah, but you, you, have to, you have to pay dues twice, and that uh, always upsets me for you. <laughs> well, you have to pay taxes. Now, you, at, at the end of this book, uh, at least in, in 2003 or in 2000, uh, you were pastoring a small church in your hometown. you still doing That's that? That's correct. Huh? Are you still doing that? Uh, I quit last summer uh, when uh, I just had too many obligations to still deal with that, so I, I quit um, probably around June of, of last year. But you're virtually an agnostic, uh, borderline uh, atheist. What were you pasteurizing? Milk. <laughs> well, I, 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 I was talking talking to them then just as I'm talking to you now, and uh, I, frankly, I was a little shocked that they stuck around. Yeah. Howard, let me give you a quote from one of his sermons. All right? I got it right in front of me. Okay. Christianity's main problem is the same problem that infested its root, that most Christians are every bit as blind as the Pharisees of Jesus' day. We suffer from the same smugness. We wrap ourselves in the same filthy cloak of false piety they did. We believe we're superior to everyone else in the area of religion simply because we believe in the right religion. Somehow, in our minds, it Anyway, we have the good grace to be born with the right stuff to believe the right way. See, not only would I buy this guy's book, but I would I, I remain a Jew, but I'd show up and want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> hey, Seriously. The, the cult, I, I, the cult. I, I'm not signing up. I, um, I would show up. Do we have to wear pink tennis shoes and wait for the spaceship? <laughs> no, the spaceship came and went. All, yeah. we're, all we're doing now is the purple towel. I, I am worried for you, though, and I have to. I have to re-ask the question: Is uh, you, you already have me dead and gone when this guy gets out of jail? But when, when is he getting out of jail? Uh, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in 2006. So somebody that's better at math 31. than I am would have 31. Yeah, Mark's the uh, accountant here. Is that 2031? That sounds right. I got a so shot, I, I, by the way. If I make it to tomorrow, I've got a yeah, shot. Well, but yeah, Sean might have a, a shot at Leif. If he... Well, I'm, I'm worried. How, how old are you now, sir, if I may ask? I am 44. So that would put you at uh, Mark. Uh, that would put him at uh, oh, around 59. Oh, you're a kid. Oh, yeah. A kid. So, so what yeah, is well, it? 44 well, maybe what he uses on you. But hang on a second. So you're 50, 59, 60 years old, and you, you're obviously going to know when he's out. What, yeah. How do you handle that? What do you do? Because you're, you're just as worried now today <laughs> about him as you were the day you found out he did what he did. Well, if, if you look at pissed. how he did what he did, it was, it was very cowardly and secret. Uh, I don't think he would just show up in the middle of a, of a street somewhere and start, and start blowing away with a gun. Uh, so uh, I'm not too concerned about it. I have a lot of dogs. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not yeah. worried if you you know, I don't think. Plus, I'm I'm kind of hard to find. But then, uh, well, I, well, I found you. What is he? What he's doing? Uh, how he is dealing with this in prison uh, is interesting in this reflect. Yeah, I, he's he's fallen back into the fundamentalist religion that led him to that point, uh, and he, he's uh, he's claimed at least to a TV producer that he's apostolic, which is the most fundamentalist form of Pentecostalism there is. Explain that to me, because you're way over my head. 
Okay. Uh, Pentecostals believe that uh, speaking in tongues, healing the sick, raising the dead, all of that stuff still goes on today. Um, uh, the apostolics are, believe that women should have long hair, long skirts, no jewelry, no makeup, uh, and that men should uh, basically be lords of their houses and women should be the servants. Oh, I can see him into that full bore, man, because that's what he was into, this control. And what I find so ironic is that now he's in prison, he has no women to lord it over, and he's probably somebody's bitch. Do you th- no, well, now, seriously, I, do you I think? I, well, I didn't put that into the book, but one of the people who visited him uh, when he was still in county jail said that he was raped in, in there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I didn't put it in the book because I couldn't verify it, but that's what I did hear that. Yeah, well, it sounds to me, I mean, it couldn't be more, a more perfect punishment. If you're going to go to hell, go for a reason, and he's in his own personal one right now because he doesn't have any women to boss around. I agree with that. No, he has other inmates he can control through, the, through his fake religion. Yes, and I believe they probably follow him uh, because he is a good preacher. Uh, and and he's very very smart. I believe he's probably got a following there. In what what is the magic of these preachers? Uh, I had the, uh, the the good fortune to hang out with Sam Kinison back in the day, who comes oh, from a, he comes from a, a preacher background. And he was I, a good preacher. He was a great preacher. He really was. And I, I used to actually see him preach. Uh, he would do it sometimes really late at night and go for it and you know, skip across the stage. And, and it was a fascinating thing. His brother and his, his parents all, you know, would set up the tent and move on to the next town and just, you know, shake them down. Uh, yeah. What is that magic? What is it that gets Marjorie people Gordon to go into it? Yeah, they go, they, but they go into their pocket and throw money in. It's an intoxicating cocktail of, of fear and power. Uh, they exploit the fear of the unknown, meaning you don't know what God wants and what he wants to do. And they claim that they do know. And then they demonstrate that power, the same kind of power you saw Sam Kennison do. His comedy was very akin to his preaching, the right. power with which he delivered it. That's right. And that power combined with the idea that they know the things that you don't know, uh, it, it, it traps people. It gets them in and makes them follow them anywhere they want to go. Also, you have the fact that Marjorie Gordner and I spent some time together. I'm sure maybe you're familiar with uh, Marjorie Gordner. That. The- that is one of my favorite movies of all time. Isn't it great? Anyway, Marjo and I were both in the press corps for the Guhu Maharaji's Millennium 73 in the Houston Astrodome, and we got paired up together. So Marjo and I got to spend a lot of time talking about this stuff. And as he often says, and sometimes you'll see him on TV saying this, is that for the people who go to those tent shows, they don't go to movies. They're not yep. going to go see the temps and the tops of the casino. You know, they, this is their entertainment. This is their showbiz. And the I believe money. in his in his book in his book he said it's their it's their rock concert. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and 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 there are whole segments of the population that don't go to church. They have church. It's a participatory yeah. entertainment experience. Were, were, yeah. were, were you asking for money until you decided to stop preaching? No, I always found it distasteful. I was pastoring my own church. I went out of my way to make sure I never saw the money or touched it. Um, uh, but. Um, I was asking for money for Morris Cirillo, so I guess. How, I'm just how did Maury handle? Uh, how did Maury handle this murder business? He um, largely ignored it. I asked him to comment on it, and he basically said, "Sean was a good employee, and don't ask me about this ever again." <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that what a that. son of a bitch! <laughs> if you don't mind me saying, come That's on. All right. I mean, come. What a you know. I'm not going to start in because you could finish. <laughs> well, you, you remember the, the the Heaven's Gate cult yeah. uh, down there in San Diego. He yeah. was two houses away from them. He lives in that same neighborhood. No kidding. But he wasn't yeah. wearing the tennis shoes. What was, what was in the water down there? 
My God. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. There, uh, there's always going to be someone out there that isn't capable in and of themselves to accept life and that they're in control of their lives. And they will always be someone who needs someone else to tell them what to think Are you and what now? to do. You're preaching. And reach behind your television <laughs> set and feel the warmth of my sincerity. That's the best performance she's done since she came here. came here. Yeah, I know. I'm really impressed. Wow. I should do that more often. Huh? Well, thank you. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I had another buddy who worked for Reverend Ike. <laughs> Oh wow! And we was uh, he started up being a uh, a soul disc jockey, and I, and I helped him get a gig here in L.A. at uh, KJF uh, KJFJ, whatever the, the soul station was here. Those back in the days of the real Don Steele, and he did incredibly well. Actually, beat Steele in the afternoon ratings, which was astonishing. But he went on to work for Reverend Ike, and he told me that they'd string a, a laundry line, you know, uh, uh, with clothespins on it. And they'd put the dollar bills on there. He said, I don't want to hear any change. I don't want to hear any change. Just put those dollar bills. Take your dollar bills. Deadly vows. Deadly vows. The true story of a zealous preacher, a polygamous union, a savage murder by Leif M. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Deadly vows. It is an excellent book. Burl Bear says, buy it, read it, believe it. I'm buying it. And Leif, thanks a lot for being with us today. Come back Uh, sometime. Thank you. We'd like to have you back. I mean, there's so much more to talk about other than the book. Damn interesting. Love to do it. Okay, thanks again. Hey, bro, what do we got going next? Oh, I got Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence. He's got a special radio program on his radio program. He's got living legends of rock and roll radio, including me, of course, if I stick around. <laughs> an outlaw radio. go 16 years with a person as your best friend slash business partner slash a school chum and not see any sign that this guy has the potential of not only murdering somebody but but uh, butchering their body cutting off their fingernails taking half their face off almost decapitating what am i leaving out kids you know how, how do you miss that don't and, and that's the thing it, hindsight is 2020 yep. after the after the crime happened you look back and you go oh yeah i saw this in him and that should have alerted me but during while it's going on you don't think that you don't think well he's got a temper because everybody's got a temper uh so so the the short and quick answer to that is you see everything that leads up to that but only after it happens does it become significant so what did you see what did your hindsight tell you then what did you see that you missed that you know you missed i saw that he was very misogynistic and that he was very controlling of women and that he w- he had a very big authority over him yeah uh, he 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 really did not like being bossed around and and when he finally found women who would follow him he bossed them around uh like like a prison i mean it was he went crazy on them and then i also saw that he had a quick temper Uh, when we were in college he held one kid out a window one time for dropping the f-bomb around a couple of women so right away you notice that your friend is slightly volatile however (laughs) and being as he likes to be in a power position he becomes a preacher yes so he can tend the needs of his flock so to speak well, and he was 
was an excellent preacher. It's easy, it's easy again, in hindsight, to, to demonize him and to go back and, and say, you know, this guy was, was a manipulator. But during, when you're in the thick of it at the time, he was an amazingly good preacher. And uh, he, was, he was a very kind person, a very giving person. So you have to really balance everything and say, even though the signs were there that he was going to become this homicidal maniac, uh, the truth is, when those signs were being displayed, they were buried amidst all these other signs Ah. that this is a really good guy. So he covered himself pretty well. He played one role when he was in the spotlight. Well, I think he played it... Even when he wasn't. in the spot. Yeah, he played it most of the time. Uh, there, you know, he did let some show through the cracks, but you had to be really close to him to see it. Uh, he was very controlling of his first wife, and uh, and I believe for a while I was the only one who saw it. Now let's let's give our audience a little bit of background here. The fellow that he's talking about, his good buddy Sean, uh, is actually, as he says, a very good, uh, very good preacher. Uh, gets up there, he can move the crowd, make them uh, really get into it. And uh, he, he demonstrates he's a nice guy. He, you know, take the, literally give the coat off his back to give to someone who doesn't have one. But he's got these other deep-rooted emotional problems. Uh, he has a wife, but then he becomes uh, fascinated with the concept of polygamy, of having more than one wife. After all, a lot of Bible folks had him. Why not him? Am I right? <laughs> That's exactly right. By the way, uh, uh, under being bossed around, don't get married. <laughs> and the worst thing that well, can happen is if you ask ask your wife what's wrong honey she says nothing you got real problems oh you got even bigger problems than that <laughs> now, so it doesn't like being bossed around get married once and then wait a minute not good enough for me let me add another one in here well, and that's it, why he liked to marry women who were so young so much younger than him so that uh he would be the one in charge so that uh they they never felt on equal footing to him to challenge him like that or to or to tell him what to do. So it was wife number two that he killed? Yes. The, the okay, do you think that, using your hindsight now, do you think he killed more than once? No, I don't, although... I wouldn't I wouldn't put it beyond the realm of possibility. He had a third wife who disappeared. However, uh she disappeared under fairly natural circumstances and probably is still alive. Uh, oh, let's tell us those circumstances. Now I'm, I'm uh, Yeah, I didn't uh, quite grasp the third yeah. one there. This well, is... the third one didn't really make it into the book is why. Uh she was uh, an older lady that he married from New York and she only lasted with their family about 9 months before the other two wives asked her to leave. <laughs> and uh, so she left on her own accord. I don't. I don't believe Sean killed her. I, I'm pretty sure she left on her own accord. I, I did a lot of work trying to track her down for the book and never could find her. Yeah, the book, by the way, is called Deadly Vows. I like to get that in there because it's an absolutely fascinating book for several reasons. One, not only is is the character study of your buddy, this Sean guy, who seems so exemplary, as Jim Jones did at one time, and he gets fascinated with this thing of polygamy. Now. Uh, I don't know whether he wants people to boss around or around the house to have plenty of them, which is a big mistake because it's not going to work that way. Could it, uh, could it be that he, he had an innate need to live and follow the teachings that he was espousing? 
No, I, I don't. I really don't think that was the issue. I think it was the exact opposite. I believe he did, he found a loophole that would allow him to have more than one woman without uh, without being askew of the Bible, and then he bent theology to meet that desire. Here's the loophole. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there was a recent Same study guy, a done. Lot of time on that. Anybody, any guys listening that if that you're thinking about getting a second wife in there, do not do that. <laughs> thank anybody, you, thank you, Howard. Hang on a second. One more thing, and then I'm going to let you get back to the show. Anybody thinking about getting a wife right now? <laughs> Think again. Okay, I'm done. I, I hope right. your wife isn't listening. Both of them are. <laughs> both of them are. Both, both of them are disappearing under mysterious and, and circumstances. Both of them are, are cheering. Hey, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, this guy, Sean, he has a wife. Gets a, She's young. She's like teenage, right? She was uh, 17 when he married her. So he convinces her that, gee, honey, things would be easier around the house if we bring in a second woman? But he convinced her that it was God's will. Yeah. Well, this is why I started to say there's a recent study done that if you ask people God's what their think God's opinion is on any topic, amazingly enough, it always matches theirs. <laughs> and if they change their mind, God changed his mind. It's the most amazing thing. And don't forget, by the way, God got his will at LegalZoom.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing would be humorous if it weren't so damn tragic, because when this woman, uh, this, give, give her her name, the second wife. Joy Risker. Now, she's a good-looking young lady. She also has got some smarts, and she has goals for her life. She wants a career. She, you know, she's got some things going on. This doesn't sit well with him, does it? No, no, he couldn't handle that. She was going to go to college and become essentially financially independent. And, uh, he saw that he saw that as losing his control. Also, that if if she ditches him, if she walks, what kind of example does that set for him being a good husband? Well, in his mind, that that uh, totally undermined every bit of theology that he was at that time preaching, which was uh, only only people who are worthy can become actual good husbands. And if one of his wives left, that meant that he wasn't worthy. Well, I got news for him. He wasn't. Well, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> he, however, was delusional. I mean, yeah, he, he, he completely had that idea out of his mind. He did not for a second think that the problem could be him. No, and, you know, the thing is, folks, I know I'm getting ahead in the story, but this is so typical of psychopaths and people who are like your ex-buddy, Sean. Yeah. He not only murders her, he doesn't, like, just, like, poison her or kill her in her sleep. He brutally attacks her with a knife and stabs her more times than my calculator can count, rips her to shreds, uh, chops off her fingers, removes her face, cuts off her teeth with a chainsaw. I mean, we're not talking, you know, putting her out of her misery. Talking about that was a calculated attempt to disguise her so that if her body was found, he couldn't be identified as a killer. Okay, so they find, let's move the story forward a little bit. He he kills her. Mm -hmm. He uh, buries her body in another state. Right. Somebody finds the body. Meanwhile, he says to the authorities, uh, well, she, she upped and went to Europe with an old boyfriend. Initially, he said she had gone to Europe with an old boyfriend, and then when it, uh, when it came out that she didn't have a passport, he changed that <laughs> story to he changed that story to Europe or somewhere else. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, so this and, the or somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What what pressured him into confessing? That's a good question. Uh, they tried to get that out in trial. Um, the 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 truth is nobody knows except for him. Mm-hmm. I I can say that the uh, that the authorities were getting very close to calling in homicide uh, detectives, and his first wife. Uh, screamed at him and told him he needed to turn himself in. That same day, he called me, uh, and uh, and I said, uh, you know, he didn't tell me what was going on. He just asked me for for blind advice, and I told him to do the right thing. Uh, and then the next day, he uh, he turned himself in. What was well, he called you up out of the yeah. blue? Out of the blue? Out of the, well, it wasn't out of the blue. We talked a lot back then. Okay, he called you up though. And yeah. what what did he say? He said he said uh, I need uh, you to pray for me. Okay. Uh, and uh, and at that time I was I was sort of uh, sliding my way out of fundamentalist religion, and so I wasn't the kind of person who believed God talks to people all the time. Uh, so I knew he had to be desperate because he knew I believed that as well. Uh, so I did go ahead and pray for him, and of course I didn't hear anything, and so I told him that, and then I said, you know, uh, just do the right thing. You can never go wrong that way. What when you pray for someone, what do you expect to hear? Help me. Uh, me? Yeah. Me, nothing. <laughs> uh, All right, so you're at nothing now. What? Did, but what yeah. was he hearing? And what did you hear before you decided well, there was nobody home? Well, I, I had convinced myself before that my own thoughts were, were God, which I believe most people who are hearing from God have done. Right. Uh, and, and, of course, he was of the kind of religion that believed God speaks to people all day long every day. And, uh, and of course, in his state of mind, he didn't feel like he was hearing from God very clearly. And uh, so he, he thought he would reach out to the next, the next person he knew and see if, and that was see if somebody else could hear So he that. called yeah. up and said, please pray for me, even though he knew that you, uh, you had kind of converted God's voice to your own inner dialogue, as it probably is. And, and, yeah. um, and, he, and, and, and you prayed for him and you heard <laughs> nothing. And, but right. how did you know, or did you have this feeling that something was askew? No, I did. I didn't. I, I thought he was hurting over the fact that his wife had left. Okay. Uh, because that's what he had told me. Uh, but I knew he had to be desperate, and so I, I offered up whatever advice I could, which again was just do the right thing. Uh, and uh, I don't know how much that could have influenced him. I think more the the police asking more pointed questions and his wife screaming at him were probably <laughs> probably the big uh, motivators. Yeah. Yeah, so, I would think so. So she's good and dead in another state. But yeah. at this point, when he confesses, he confesses, they hadn't found any body yet, right? That's correct. They didn't find uh, her body until uh, four or five months after he confessed. And then how did they know it was her body after That's he did That's a this? fascinating story itself. Yeah. Well, they didn't know it was her body for the longest time. He, she was found just outside of uh, Phoenix in, uh, in Maricopa County, Arizona. And uh, the forensics people there, she was already mostly skeleton uh, by then, and they went out of their way to reassemble her skeleton and build up a, uh, a clay profile and then a drawing of what she looked like to try and find out who she was. And uh, it was probably another six months after they found her when they finally got a hit on a DNA database um, that turned out to be the wrong person. But then once they had her DNA in the database, they found that she was the missing girl from San Diego. Yeah, they, they were trying to identify another body that they had found, and they, uh, uh, they sent this body's DNA for another missing person and said, no, it's not her, it's somebody else. So, guys, yeah. with DNA evidence, and this goes out to all everybody here. Don't kill anybody. You're, you're always, you, there's no getting away with anything anymore, no matter how you chop somebody up. 
Well, now there's not, but but back then DNA was still sort of in its infancy, and getting DNA from bone uh, was even more sketchy. So, and it was very expensive. And and the Maricopa County people explained to me that they didn't automatically back then enter bone DNA into the databases because it was too expensive to get. No. Oh. Something interesting out of this attempt. Your mic isn't working there again. See, I told you we were doing our technical sweep here. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, there was something interesting about the uh, his attempt to hide uh, or disguise the body so it couldn't be identified. Um, there was some uh, interest in the defense on uh, uh, the CSI effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you elaborate? Yeah, he um, he and I had actually discussed writing a book, a fiction book, about a killer who uh, simply watches uh, forensics files and, and shows like that to figure out what police do to catch killers and then avoid doing all those things. Um, the and, best and thing to avoid is not committing the crime. Thanks, bro. Well, yeah. <laughs> well but spoken. But if you're a character in a book, you have to commit the crime and there's no book. That's right. So you were talking about a piece of fi- fiction, obviously. Yeah, it was going to be fiction, and uh, we went into great detail about all of the things that our killer would do uh, to, to uh, outsmart the police, including uh, removing the identity of the deceased, um, you know, hiding the body, things like that. Were you, uh, called, were you called in the case? I was called, but not for that reason. For what reason? I was called to testify initially uh, that he had asked me to lie on a blog and use, uh, use a different name than my own. Uh, and only after that did the, did the DA discover that he and I had been friends for a long time, so they recalled me uh, after he had testified, and they recalled me essentially to rebut his testimony. Well, this guy's a real piece of work. I mean, yes. he was – the thing about him killing her that way, and the, is that, but in the initial act of killing her, he could have killed her softly with his song. He could have done it in a way that wasn't so violent. Why did he – after taking her out for a lovely afternoon, uh, kill her with such anger and viciousness. Again, that's anybody's guess. My guess is uh, he espoused a violent religion. In other words, not not physically violent, but violent toward the devil. And I believe uh, he believed to to exercise this devil that he thought she had become. He had to do it as violently as possible. What a what a BS excuse. Yeah, well, I agree. It's amazing what people do in the name of religion. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to take a 60-second break to cut off some fingers and soft some teeth. We're going to make soup. (laughs) We'll be right back in 60 seconds with Leif Wright, author of Deadly Vows, a true crime uncensored. You're no longer tied to your computer. You're now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. 
Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio, Demons of Decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked in the cradle of rhythm and blues, taking time out of my busy schedule to remind you to take every cent you have and spend it buying books. Of course, you should buy the book by our guest, Deadly Vows, by Leif M. Wright, a wonderful book, a real uplifting story. But while you're at it, buy all of mine, including Murder on 9-11, true story of a Tacoma homicide, longest investigation in Tacoma history, also Manling Williams' deadly sins. She uh, killed both her kids and then slashed her husband to death 97 times with a samurai sword and then wrote him a suicide note. However, you should buy Body Count, the true story of the Spokane serial killer. While you're at it, get headshot, two and a half psychopaths, three trials, and a judge that runs screaming out of the courtroom. True story. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're cordially invited to stay tuned for the rest of True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio, standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Yes, of course. Burl Baron. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Oh, you should have, Roger. We're talking to Leif M. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. The book is Deadly Vows, an absolutely fascinating book about his best buddy, Sean, who uh, was a great preacher and a lousy human being. He, uh, he decided he wanted more than one wife, and when the second one decided she wanted a career, well, the logical thing to do is kill her and chop her up in little pieces. Yeah, it's, it uh, to say that this makes yeah. any sense. There we go. Oh, then uh, didn't he uh, also fake some emails from Europe or somewhere else? Yes, when the when the police were asking where she was, uh, he emailed her friends as her uh, and told them to leave her alone. And then uh, he emailed himself as her uh, and and told him to tell the police that she was just fine. Oh yes, well. Getting back to the question we asked earlier, I opened up your book, and as if by divine intervention, the Lord guided me to page 153, where it says, Though we had preached about spiritual, not physical violence, it seems Sean now viewed joy as an enemy. Somehow the only way he saw out of the situation was violence, brutal, bloody violence. Now, he'd already sedated her with some codeine and uh, methazine. Sean easily could have smothered her with a pillow, but no. No, he attacked her, stabbing her again and again, deeply enough to scar her bones, brutally enough to sever her sternum. He wasn't mercifully ending a problem that had cropped up. He was attacking an adversary with all his might. He was going to warfare against this evil thing. She was pretty good looking for an evil thing. Hey, that's pretty good. You should have that author on. (laughs) You are the author, and you're on. uh, Hang on. I've got the mic back. Let me ask you something. No, you don't. Damn. When, when, when is the last time you spoke with him? The last time I spoke with Sean was when he called me the day before he turned himself in. And, and uh, throughout the process of the court case, you never spoke to him? Throughout the putting together of this book, you never spoke to him? I, I tried. I wrote him letters and asked him for comments, uh, and he uh, ignored them. But he did tell his family uh, to tell me what a son of a bitch I was for writing it. 
Well, you are a son of a bitch. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you do know my mom, then. Okay? <laughs> yeah, we, we met that one. So, uh, no, I'm sorry. But, yeah. but um, uh, so no contact after 16 years, and you're a son of a bitch now because you wrote a book about the guy. Um, wow. Now, but yeah, in the courtroom, that, I mean, you had to see Sean when you went into that courtroom to testify at his murder trial, and there you are, his former best buddy. What does he do? He looks at you. Does he the scowl? First time, yeah, the first time when they called me to the stand and I walked up to the stand, he uh, winked at me and smiled. You know, in some of those emails, what did, what did you ask him that you nobody's asked you yet? What did you ask him? What's the most personal thing you asked him? That I asked Sean? Yeah, and, and when you were trying to communicate with him. Um, well, I didn't ask him anything other than would he like to talk about about the case for the book because I was going to write the book. Um, uh, you so didn't I, try to I'm hook not, him. You didn't try and hook him into a conversation. You're a journalist. You know how to do that. Well, I, I understand, but he's also a journalist, and so he was uh, he was privy to all those tricks. Uh, basically, I was just trying to get him to think that I was on his side. Uh, so I said things like, um, it's a shame I had to testify against you, that kind of stuff, uh-huh. uh, which was total bullshit. Uh, I, I would have testified against him no matter what. But. So were you pissed? That, were you angry at him? Yes, yes, furious. Okay, but obviously a sick man, yes? No? I'm sorry. I, I he's a, he's a sick he's a, he's a sick man. Oh, yeah, he's he's off the rocker for sure. In fact, I believe if he were out today, he would still be of a mindset that could do this sort, sort of thing. Uh, yeah. I, when does he get out? If he gets out, he'll get out when he's about 65. Yeah. Ooh. Where does that put us in time? Um, well, you guys are pretty old, so it puts you dead. <laughs> I, I would... <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I it make it to the a... end of the show, Leaf, I'm doing good. <laughs> All right? A smart um, ass. You want to start with being dead? Hang on a second. <laughs> Who's he coming after first when he gets out? It's not going to be me. I'll be resting. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it will be me. Yeah, uh, yeah I think so. Uh, in, a typical, in a typical psychopathic fa- fashion, he, your buddy, Sean, ex-buddy, Sean, the brutal yeah. murderer preacher, he casts himself... In the role of a victim. Yes. And that this is this is actually kind of a good thing because it'll make him stronger in serving the Lord. He he did that at the sentencing. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, give us a little detail on that. How did he how did he present himself at that thing? At the sentencing, he he the first thing he did was thank the judge for giving him the opportunity to to expose his personal flaws <laughs> and how that would make him a better Christian. Uh, and then he uh, and then he spoke to his sons and said, "I hope someday you understand my plight." Uh, and then he told them that he loved them more than he loved life itself, which I think is crazy because if he loved them that much, he wouldn't have killed their mother. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point you raise. <clears throat> now, but how are those kids? I mean, it's, it's a very upsetting thing, <laughs> to put it mildly, when dad kills mom or vice versa. These kids must be kind of screwed up behind all this. Uh, you know, I don't know. I do know that Sean's older brother is, is raising the, the kids uh, just probably about uh, 40 miles from where I live right now. Oh, so, um, so the first wife didn't keep the kids? No, the first wife kept her own child, which uh, he had one by her and two by the, the second wife. And she's going to supposedly just go off, you know, to Europe or someplace else. 
Yeah, supposedly she was just going to leave her children and, and run off to Europe with a boyfriend, which is really what, what made everybody's ears stick up because she was a good mother and no one could imagine her just leaving her children. Yeah, that's, that is a little bit unusual. Tell us a little bit about his, his preaching career. He was hooked up with some pretty high-profile people, wasn't he? He was. He, he started out um, when we were just barely teenagers. Uh, he started out preaching, and by the time he was 22, he was pastoring one of the fastest-growing churches in the nation. Uh, and then by the time he was 27, he was a chief writer for Morris Cirillo, who's a televangelist. And uh, from that point forward, he and I wrote for many televangelists and uh, spent a lot of time around them and a lot of time uh, you know, raising money for them and doing all kinds of other shady stuff. Other <laughs> shady Whoa, stuff? Whoa, back up. Whoa, back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get the truck uh, That's got interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, put the book aside for a second. <laughs> Well, what sort of shady stuff, shady stuff were you doing for the televangelists? Mostly the raising of money. We had convinced ourselves that the ends justified the means, and so we, at some point, became okay with lying to to raise the money. Oh yeah, that's uh, a very that's a very uh, uh, big Christian okay. virtue. Give us give us the lie. Well, we would say things like, um, if you go to this meeting. Uh, Morris Cirillo will personally prophesy over you, and prophesy being uh, supposedly telling you God's will for your life. Well, when we said that, we meant Morris will stand up on stage and prophesy over all 10,000 people. But what the reader took it as is he will come to you personally and speak to you about God's will for your life. And that'll be we how much? Time, that'll be how much? God's will is how much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, $1,000 if you want a seat in the front. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, what do you get for the thousand? He does, does he come down and give you the old blessed roof? Oh no, he never did that. But no. if you paid a thousand, you got to sit in the front row. No kidding. That's true. Well, I can get Springsteen seats for six hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Springsteen's not going to tell you the Lord's will for your life. No, but I believe him. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, this individual do the Peter Popoff? Uh, we knew about Peter Popoff, uh, and we made fun of Peter Popoff because he got, you know, he got caught using a radio to uh, to prophesy to people. Um, and and Morris was always very careful to avoid scandals like that. He never got caught up in any of those things, although he was just as fake as Peter Popoff ever was. So, uh, so, so they're all fake, right? Every one of to them. To my knowledge, they are. I never, uh, I There's never no ran way. into one. I never ran into a televangelist that I trust my kids with. Now, that's an important statement. How about an evangelist that you would, would you trust your kids with? No, not really. I think they're all a little bit out there. <laughs> so you, you were one of them, so you were out there yourself. But when you split, I was. You, so you, when you, not only did you leave, you left with a vengeance, seemingly. Well, it's, it's kind of like... I'm uh, hearing you're a little pissed about the whole deal. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Of course I am. It's, yeah. it's kind of like the worst ex-smoker, or the worst uh, anti-smoking person is an ex-smoker. Uh, and and uh, I'm kind of the worst uh, evangelical because I'm an ex-evangelical. Yeah, because you've, you've been there. And uh, that's one of the, the subplots, shall we say, of this book that I find absolutely fascinating. Is not only does he really get into the mind and the behavior of Sean, he gets into his own mind and behavior, where he was coming from and, and where he is now. And uh, while that doesn't dominate the story, it's a, a fascinating aspect of it. It scares me, though, Burrow, because we see what happened to this guy. And, you know, he's got something in common with a lot of other people being an evangelist. I'm just wondering, is that gene planted in other evangelists? Do you see that anyplace else in life? 
No, but I think the religion lends itself to that because it gives carte blanche to people who they believe are called by God. In, in the preaching that you really don't mess with someone if they're called by God. And that gives those people who are allegedly called by God a lot of room to, to do crazy things and then blame it on God. Is that, does, that, does, does, that, uh, does that give license to priests to... Uh, 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 it's a different mindset, I well, think, in Catholicism than it is in, in the uh, well, yeah, but Pentecostal hey, evangelical well, mindset. I, I don't know that it is a different I, mindset that's, because that's my they point. just move them to a new diocese. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I, don't, I don't see any of these individuals yeah. trying to, uh, try to um, uh, even put forth the defense that God said it was okay for me to molest these little children. Or kill my wife. Right. Well, apparently God said it was okay for him to kill his wife, right? I think in his mind it's a possibility that he thinks that. He never said that, but, uh, but I would not put that outside the realm of possibility. But when he said, when he called you up the night before... And said, pray for me. Yeah. He Was he trying to get you to stop him or hear him? Was I it, think he was. I, I, there's a story in the Bible where a king asks uh, a bunch of magicians to tell him what his dream was and then tell him what it meant. And I think it was in that vein that Sean was asking me. He wanted to see if maybe God would tell me something. Hey, he killed his wife or something like that, which, of course, didn't happen. So did, um, did, uh, I, help me out, and I'm sorry. Did, did he call you before he killed her, or did he call you before he confessed? Well, he, he talked to me before he killed her, but it was just about how he was going to have to get rid of her, uh, <laughs> which, of course, I took to <laughs> <Well>, mean divorce. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's play that conversation back in your head, which you've done uh, 10,000 times. Give, yeah, us that, okay. give us that conversation, because you you've played it back. Uh, yeah, you, he you called know. me. Yeah, he called me and and we were talking about life. And then uh, I said, "How's Joy and the kids?" And he said, "Leif, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get rid of her." And I said, "Well, what's what's up with that?" And he said, "Well, she's a horrible mother. Uh, she's messy. She spends too much money." He said, uh, "She and specifically, he said she leaves dishes in the sink, which I thought oh, was an odd no. reason." Oh no! Yeah, I, it's, I it's thought funny. that was a pretty it, odd it, reason. It's funny because I'm, divor- uh, I'm so divorcing I, somebody I really, for the opposite reason. She cleans too much. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I really, uh, I really took that to mean that he was going to divorce her, and he right. told me at that time she had two weeks to shape up or ship out. And uh, turns out I was not the only person he was telling that to. He told another woman the same thing at that same time. Yeah, time was marching onward, and <laughs> she was doomed. We're going to take a uh, short break for another 60 seconds to sharpen our knives and clean the sink, and we'll be right back. On True Crime Uncensored with special guest Leif M. Wright, author of the great new book, Deadly Vows, which you should buy immediately. We'll be right back. Hey, gang, this is Lori Downey Jr., and I've got a message just for you. If you own a cell phone, and we know you do, or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now safe to roam while Barstow's burning, and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com. The smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. You know, the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. 
Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Okay, gets out of jail. He, we know he's going to be 65. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Well, they can talk about what he's doing. Oh, come on. I'll take time out of our busy schedule to discuss Satan. You know, Satan, Beelzebub, Hell's a-poppin', the monkey on the back of Western Christianity, a cross between that little green man roving the dishwashers, putting spots on the glasses, and the worst thing you can imagine. Stealing your socks in the dryer. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, it seems to me that Satan gets preached about in some of these churches more than God does. What do you say, Leif? Uh, that sounds like it's directly taken from my book. It is! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old two-god theory, dualism. I keep reminding people when it's dark outside, it's not dark because some black orb is radiating darkness. I thought it's, that was the Jungian thing, the duality the, of man. No, no, no. The, it's dark because the earth is turned away from the light of the sun, not because there's a black orb radiating darkness. Uh, they seem to have a little problem grasping that. Yeah. By, by the way, I'm buying your book, damn it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I, I am going to buy this book. Uh, I, I, you're a fascinating guy, and and to have gone through the transformation, that, the personal transformation that you've gone through, the because um, uh, you're you're angry, and you're upset, yet you still, are, you know, you're a journalist, and you still decided I'm going to write this thing, I'm going to document this thing. So hats off to you. It was that was actually a tough decision um, because you know I waited about ten years before I wrote the book. Uh, because I, I felt like you know maybe it should just go away, and then I and then I thought no, people need to understand. They need to know that that you just don't know the people around you. You never know who is capable of this kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's rather shocking when you find out that your best friend just chops someone up a little pieces. Anything uh, about anybody else around you, or do, 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 <laughs> let you off the hook with this guy? Uh, as far as I know, they're all they're all nice people. But then again, you know I've been fooled before, so you probably shouldn't trust me. Yeah, after all, you're just like him. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 but you quit. Damn it, you quit. You, 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 did you, do you think that you, when you were working for the televangelist, do you think that you were stealing? I think I was helping him steal, so I was just as guilty as he was, by, by all means. You know, I'm going to quote from your book here because it, the, the book is, is excellent. The shock of my best friend murdering someone I knew and loved still simmers beneath the surface for me, and at the most inopportune times, it will pop back up in my consciousness. Invariably, the questions arise, how could you not have known about him? What kind of cult were you in? Are you stupid? Are you crazy? Recalling those times for this book has been difficult and embarrassing. It's ugly to remember myself as the closed-minded hypocrite I was during those times. It hurts me to remember being prejudiced against so many people, those of other religions, those of other lifestyles, and those who wish to believe and know God at all. And that's exactly what Sean and his murder remind me of. Do you, do you believe in God? Uh, you know, I hope there's a God. Uh, I, I don't... Uh... I don't have any evidence to say that there is or that there, that there isn't, so uh, I'm, I'm sort of agnostic about it, but I really do hope there is one. In your hope, what do you see? What's your picture? In my hope, it is a God who is nowhere near as prejudiced as the God of the Bible, a God who, who uh, uh, basically created us all, cares for us all, and uh, doesn't get judgmental, and uh, certainly there is no hell. I, I will say that beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is no hell. It's interesting. The, um, the, the book, the, the, old, the Old Testament, the New Testament, fairy tales? 
no, I think they were they were people's attempts to to put a face on what they believed. I likened it in the book to this. Uh, the Mona Lisa was inspired by uh, Da Vinci's model. I think the same way the Bible was inspired by God. In other words, he saw this woman and did his best to represent her. Uh, on the on the canvas, and I think the writers of the Bible had a belief system, and they did their best to represent it in the Bible. But it's certainly not a photographic image. But I mean, the fir- the the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are different people. Well, the Old Testament God different, is, different is, is, is angry and vengeful and violent. I, I think that's overwhelmingly the case. I also think in the Old Testament, though, there's some some very poignant. Uh, examples of him being loving and sappy and sort of like the hippie Jesus kind of thing. Uh, it just doesn't happen as often as it did in the New Testament. So yeah, you always get to see who is like under the, you know, slow to anger, full of mercy, and his mercy yeah. endureth forever, as we uh, say over and over again on the High Holy Days. Well, he coming was, he was upset with us, so he just decided to drown everybody. So, 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 so Leif, somebody comes to us. happening hey, here Leif, now. Leif, you can write a chapter of the Bible. Let's say you have that ability, and and they're going to put it in. What would that chapter look like? I, it would look a lot like um, Buddhism. I think it, it would be more of a hey, just try to be a good person. Uh, and uh, if there's some if there's some crazy god up there who's gonna gonna throw you in hell just because you don't believe in him, then you know, screw it. It reminds me of my friend of Phil Clickard. That's his real name. Uh, <laughs> said, what if the Christians are right? What if God is crazy? <laughs> I said, don't, don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. How about this? And I've, I've quoted my late friend Richard Jane, the stand-up comedian, before. Oh, uh, he said his take on religion was simple. It was, uh, religion is about a bunch of guys who are willing to go to war and kill each other over who has the best imaginary friend. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, there's, a, there's also a Patton Oswalt joke about, about uh, the big cake god in the sky. And, uh, you know, our cake is better than your cake. And no, it's the big donut god in the sky. Yeah, or the uh, spaghetti monster. Now, I, I happen to be a very religious person, not probably in the, the way one would imagine. Uh, and in my faith, I'm a, I'm a Jewish fellow who also uh, subscribes to the Baha'i faith, where it says the fundamental purpose, maybe you'll like this, the fundamental purpose animating the faith of God and his religion is to safeguard the interests and promote the unity of the human race. And so to foster like a spirit of love and fellowship. It, it's very nice what you have Anything to pay. else is man-made BS. Yeah, but you, you, have, to, you have to pay dues twice, and that uh, always upsets me for you. <laughs> well, you have to pay taxes. Now, you, at, tax at the end tax. of this book, uh, at least in, in 2003 or in 2000, uh, you were pastoring a small church in your hometown. You still doing That's that? That's correct. Huh? Are you still doing that? Uh, I quit last summer uh, when uh, I just had too many obligations to still deal with that, so I I quit uh, probably around June of of last year. But you're virtually an agnostic, uh, borderline uh, atheist. What were you pasteurizing? (laughs) Milk. I was was talking talking to them then just as I'm talking to you now, and uh, frankly, I was a little shocked that they stuck around. Yeah. Howard, let me give you a quote from one of his sermons. I got it right in front of me. Okay. Christianity's main problem is the same problem that infested its root, that most Christians are every bit as blind as the Pharisees of Jesus' day. We suffer from the same smugness. We wrap ourselves in the same filthy cloak of false piety they did. We believe we're superior 
to everyone else in the area of religion simply because we believe in the right religion. Somehow, in our minds anyway, we had the good grace to be born with the right stuff to believe the right way. See, not only would I buy this guy's book, but I would remain a Jew, but I'd show up and want to hear what he has to say. Seriously, I'm not signing up. I, um, I would show up. Do we have to wear pink tennis shoes and wait for the spaceship? <laughs> no, the spaceship came and went. All, yeah. we're, all we're doing now is the purple towel. I, I am worried for you, though, and I have to. I have to re-ask the question: Is uh, you, you already have me dead and gone when this guy gets out of jail? But when, when is he getting out of jail? Uh, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in 2006. So somebody that's better at math 31? than I am would have. 31? Yeah, Mark's the uh, accountant here. Is that 2031? That sounds right. I got a so shot, I, I, by the way. I, if I make it to tomorrow, I've got a yeah, shot. Well, but yeah, Sean might have a, a shot at Leif. If he... Well, I'm, I'm worried. <laughs> how, how old are you now, sir, if I may ask? I am 44. So that would put you at uh, Mark. Uh, that would put him at uh, oh, oh, around 59. Oh, you're a kid. Oh, yeah. A kid. <laughs> So, so what yeah, is it? Forty-four, what, maybe. What he uses on you? But hang on a second. So you're 50, 59, 60 years old, and you, you're obviously going to know when he's out. What? Yeah. How do you handle that? What do you do? Because you're you're just as worried now today <laughs> about him as you were the day you found out he did what he did. Well, if if you and look at pissed. how he did what he did, it was it was very cowardly and secret. Uh, I don't think he would just show up in the middle of a, of a street somewhere and start and start blowing away with a gun. Uh, so uh, I'm not too concerned about it. I have a lot of dogs, uh, so <laughs> I'm not worried. Yeah. If, you know, I don't think. Plus, I'm, I'm kind of hard to find. But then, uh, well, I, well, I found you. What is he? What he's doing? Uh, how he is dealing with this in prison uh, is interesting in this reflect. Yeah, I, he's he's fallen back into the fundamentalist religion that led him to that point. Uh, and he, he's uh, he's claimed at least to a TV producer that he's apostolic, which is the most fundamentalist form of Pentecostalism there is. Explain that to me, because you're way over my head. Okay, uh, Pentecostals believe that uh, speaking in tongues, healing the sick, raising the dead, all of that stuff still goes on today. Um, the apostolics are, believe that women should have long hair, long skirts, no jewelry, no makeup. Uh, and that men should uh, basically be lords of their houses and women should be the servants. Oh, I can see him into that full bore, man, because that's what he was into, this control. And what I find so ironic is that now he's in prison, he has no women to lord it over, and he's probably somebody's bitch. Do you think? No, well, now, seriously, I, do you I think? I, well, I didn't put that into the book, but one of the people who visited him uh, when he was still in county jail said that he was raped in, in there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I didn't put it in the book because I couldn't verify it, but that's what I did hear that. Yeah, well, it sounds to me, I mean, it couldn't be more, a more perfect punishment. If you're going to go to hell, go for a reason, and he's in his own personal one right now because he doesn't have any women to boss around. I agree with that. No, he has other inmates he can control through, the, through his fake religion. Yes, and I believe they probably follow him uh, because he is a good preacher. Uh, and and he's very very smart. I believe he's probably got a following there. In what what is the magic of these preachers? Uh, yeah, I had the, uh, the the good fortune to hang out with Sam Kinison back in the day, who comes oh, from a, he comes from a, a preacher background. And he was I, a good preacher. He was a great preacher. He really was. And I, I used to actually see him preach. Uh, he would do it sometimes really late at night and go for it and you know, skip across the stage. And, and it was a fascinating thing. His brother and his, his parents all, you know, would set up the tent and move on to the next town and just, you know, shake him down. 
Uh, yeah. What is that magic? What is it that gets Marjo people Gordner to go into? Has it. Yeah, they, they but they go into their pocket and throw money in. It's an intoxicating cocktail of of fear and power. Uh, they exploit the fear of the unknown, meaning you don't know what God wants and what he wants to do, and they claim that they do know. And then they demonstrate that power, the same kind of power you saw Sam Kennison do. His comedy was very akin to his preaching, the right. power with which he delivered it. That's right. And that power combined with the idea that they know the things that you don't know, uh, it, it, it traps people. It gets them in and makes them follow them anywhere they want to go. Also, you have the fact that Marjorie Gordner and I spent some time together. I'm sure maybe you're familiar with uh, Marjorie Gordner. That? The- that is one of my favorite movies of all time. Isn't it great? Anyway, Marjo and I were both in the press corps for the Guhu Maharaji's Millennium 73 in the Houston Astrodome, and we got paired up together. So Marjo and I got to spend a lot of time talking about this stuff. And as he often says, and sometimes you'll see him on TV saying this, is that for the people who go to those tent shows, they don't go to movies. They're not yep. going to go see the temps in the tops of the casino. You know, they, this is their entertainment. This is their showbiz. And the I believe money, in, his, in his book, in his book, he said it's their, it's their rock concert. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and there are whole segments of the population that don't go to church. They have church. It's a participatory entertainment experience. W- were, you, yeah. were, were you asking for money until you decided to stop preaching? No, I always found it distasteful. I was pastoring my own church. I went out of my way to make sure I never saw the money or touched it. Um, uh, but... Um, I was asking for money for Morris Cirillo, so I guess how, I'm how did Maury handle uh, how did Maury handle this murder business? He um, largely ignored it. I asked him to comment on it, and he basically said Sean was a good employee, and don't ask me about this ever again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what a son of a bitch! If you don't mind me saying, come That's on. All right. I mean, come on. What a you know. I'm not going to start in because you could finish. <laughs> well, you, you remember the, the, the Heaven's Gate cult yeah. uh, down there in San Diego. He yeah. was two houses away from them. He lives in that same neighborhood. No kidding. But he wasn't yeah. wearing the tennis what was What was in the water down there? My uh, God. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. There, uh, there's always going to be someone out there that isn't capable in and of themselves to accept life and that they're in control of their lives. And they will always be someone who needs someone else to tell them what to think Are you preaching and what now? to do. You're preaching. And reach behind your television <laughs> set and feel the warmth of my sincerity. That's the best performance she's done since she came, came here. Yeah, I know. I'm really impressed. Wow. I should do that more often. Huh? <laughs> I like that. Uh, I had another buddy who worked for Reverend Ike. <laughs> Oh, wow. And we was, uh, he started up being a, uh, a soul disc jockey, and I, and I helped him get a gig here in L.A. at uh, KJFJ, KGF, whatever the soul station was here, those back in the days of the real Don Steele. And he did incredibly well, actually beat Steele in the afternoon ratings, which was astonishing. But he went on to work for Reverend Ike, and he told me they'd, they'd string a, a laundry line, you know, uh, uh, with clothespins on it. And they'd put the dollar bills on there. He's, I don't want to hear any change. I don't want to hear any change. Just put those dollar bills. Take your dollar bills. Deadly vows. Deadly vows. The true story of a zealous preacher, a polygamous union, a savage murder by Leif M. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Deadly vows. It is an excellent book. Burl Bear says, buy it, read it, believe it. I'm buying it. Leif, thanks a lot for being with us today. Come back Uh, sometime. Thank you. We'd like to have you back. I mean, there's so much more to talk about other than the book. Damn interesting. Love to do it. Okay, interesting. thanks again.
Hey, bro, what do we got going next? Oh, I got Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence. He's got a special radio program on his radio program. He's got living legends of rock and roll radio, including me, of course, if I stick around. <laughs> an outlaw radio. <laughs> 